0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. This week, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the NCAA was in violation of antitrust laws with its rules surrounding athlete compensation, specifically around limiting athletes' educational benefits. My guests today are two UCLA Bruins who have been working on different paths, but both played significant roles in the outcomes of this case. Today, I'm joined by Ramogi Huma and Macon Delrin. Ramogi is the longtime executive director of the National College Players Association, a group that has worked for over a decade to bring the rights of college athletes to the forefront in NCAA decisions. He has worked tirelessly with state and federal legislators to bring about lasting change when it comes to athletes receiving the same rights and privileges as other students on campus, while strongly advocating for their mental and physical health and well-being. Megan Delarim returns to the podcast as an adjunct professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. Prior to this, he was the United States Assistant Attorney General in the Department of Justice, where he specialized in antitrust issues. Megan developed the government's brief in the NCAA versus Austin case that was eventually argued at the Supreme Court by the acting Solicitor General of the United States. I am thrilled to have them both here as they both bring a very unique and personal perspective to this case. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. We're so glad to have two UCLA Bruins here, one of the most storied (laughs) athletic programs in college sports history. How long have you both known each other?
1: Trying to do the math. What what do you think, Megan? I I think it's been at least 10 years. Probably about 10 years ago when you came and
2: uh, we had met, but then I asked you to come and uh, guest lecture a course I was teaching at Pepperdine University
1: that's right that's right
0: it always comes back to the classroom doesn't it i think that's where some (laughs) of the best discussions happen and uh now this uh supreme court ruling has burst onto the national scene we have a lot of uh competing narratives that are going on out there but i want to first talk start talk about the history of of you each coming to the table and Megan, I, i wanted to say that you bring this interesting, I just read this on your Wikipedia page, which I was really surprised about, that you shepherded Neil Gorsuch, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, through his confirmation process. Tell us about that and tell us about your understanding of Gorsuch's thinking in authoring this ruling. Well,
2: I had the great honor uh, to do that from one of the first things I did uh, about four, four and a half years ago is I joined uh, the White House Counsel's Office uh with the task of helping the, the uh the council's office in the confirmation process of uh, now justice gorsuch i had known uh, judge gorsuch and before that as, a, as an attorney in washington dc he was one of the finest uh trial lawyers uh at, at extensive experience in antitrust law and i would also gotten to know him at the uh at the 10th circuit court of appeals where he was serving as a judge um I have uh, tremendous uh, respect and admiration for his, uh, you know, his intellect and, and his ability to write clear opinions and really, you know, engage the average uh, American into the, you know, the business of law. And this this opinion, I think, is an, is a perfect example of his uh, the quality of his writing. But uh, he's a, he's a wonderful antitrust uh, jurist and practitioner. Uh, who has proven to be a phenomenal uh, Supreme Court justice?
0: So, were you surprised that he took the lead on writing this? I was
2: not surprised. Uh, you know, you, you're always don't know because uh, the opinions are usually handed down based on seniority. And I know that, you know, uh, Justice uh, Thomas uh, was the most senior uh, justice uh, by by time served. On the court uh, has a has a, a long interest in antitrust law. Mm. Uh, certainly, Justice Breyer, uh, you know, who, who has taught antitrust law and uh, has written some of the uh, great opinions. But Justice Gorsuch, uh, I was glad to see he was given this opinion, and uh, uh, I was not surprised that he or Justice Gavanaugh were interested in it. Frankly, Justice uh, Barrett is also. Uh, a big fan of uh, athletics and sports. And uh, uh, so any of them could have written this opinion.
0: You know, maybe because I know the subject matter a little bit better than some of the other antitrust cases that are out there. I found it, the writing compelling. I thought it was an easy read and, and certainly gave a good narrative. And I don't know if that's, that's typical of Gorsuch's uh, writings that you've seen in the past or atypical.
2: It's very typical of his writing style. And, you know, it's a real skill. It's, uh, as you know, uh, writing is really an art. And uh, to be able to write and to communicate effectively and his ability in in the way he says certain things without being overly legalistic, that would turn somebody off. I mean, this reads almost like a, a short story or a novel. And you get that sense of the history of it when he goes back to the you know, was it the Yale-Harvard, Yale-Princeton football game and, you know, quoting Justice Jackson and uh, a a number of others. It's just, I thought, you know, frankly, a a work of art.
0: Yeah, I do too. And Ramogi, before we dive too far into the ruling and its implications, give the listeners a brief look backwards at the creation of the National College Players Association.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I think my motivation came... Almost immediately when I stepped on campus at UCLA, I was a true freshman. I was backing up an all-American linebacker who great guys in grad school at, in, during his senior year. And uh, during the season, he's on a radio show talking about how, you know, a scholarship check doesn't quite cover all the necessities, which is the truth. Um, and he didn't even have food to last him for the rest of the month. And um, groceries were left anonymously on his doorstep. His roommate takes the groceries in. And um, my teammate didn't even know. But somehow the NCAA found out when they found out they suspended him. And this was just a couple months into me being at UCLA. I'd already lost, personally lost weight. I was an undersized linebacker, you know, trying to keep weight on, definitely not enough food. I I went from eating five, six meals a day in high school to sliding the meal card two to three times a day during the week. So I'd already lost 10, 15 pounds when this happened. And, you know, um, when I found out he was suspended, I walked right by the student store where they were selling his jersey. You know, it just seemed really um, hypocritical. You know, at the time, we were number five in the nation selling out stadiums and, it didn't make sense that any of us should be struggling for food. And and then going into summer workouts, we were informed by our school that the NCAA, should we go to these so-called voluntary workouts, which were pretty much mandatory, um, should we be injured during one of these workouts, the NCAA would not allow schools to pay for any of our medical expenses. And we had a number of athletes who didn't have medical insurance. And to me, it made no sense why all of us were sitting there quietly just taking it when truly the players, if we can channel the power, we'd be able to wield it and, and try to make a change. So. Um, a couple months later in the, in the, um, at UCLA, started a student group um, at the time it was called the Collegiate Athletes Coalition, now it's known as the NCPA uh, Nonprofit Advocacy Group.
0: That's really fascinating. So let's dive a little bit into uh, the interesting parts of this case. One of the things that really fascinated me was that the government actually played a role in this case via the Solicitor General and the Antitrust Division. They participated and presented oral arguments. So... Megan, how or why did they get involved in a private case like this? Tell us about how that came to be. And then what was your take on the final argument that the Solicitor General made back in October?
2: Sure. And, uh, you know, I was uh, at the Antitrust Division as part of this consideration. So I'm going to be careful uh, to preserve any confidentiality uh, that I'm obligated to. But as a general matter, uh, the Antitrust Division. Uh, Uh, in lower courts can look at private cases and express its views on the law, usually without taking any particular uh, position of the parties, but say, this is the correct way uh, based on our experience. Uh, Oftentimes it's welcomed. I expanded that practice in the courts of appeals and district courts uh, during my time. Uh, Often the Supreme Court asks the Solicitor General that represents the government in uh, in the Supreme Court uh, for its views, it even uh, asks the views of whether or not they should take the case in this, you know, it grants what's called certiorari to review the case in the first place. And often it's persuasive. Uh, in this particular case, uh, the, the government, um, like a friend of the court, they called it amicus, uh, like there were many others, there were players associations, the collegiate players, NFL players, uh, the government uh, did file uh, a brief uh, this had happened uh, shortly after I had left. So the acting solicitor general uh, and the antitrust division, you know, they work uh, together uh, on this and they submitted a brief, which I thought was a very strong position and an accurate reflection. It largely, uh, uh, you know, uh, followed the legal positions of the plaintiffs in this case, but. Um, and they also presented oral argument. It's a, it's, uh, a courtesy that's granted to the Justice Department, uh, often by the Supreme Court. When the Justice Department, the Solicitor General asks for time, uh, often the parties uh, also allow for that. Uh, and I thought the acting Solicitor uh, General uh, currently, who presented the oral arguments herself, did a phenomenal job. Um, I was not familiar with her, I knew of her talents, uh, but we have not been personally acquainted, um, and I thought it was just one of the uh, more powerful uh, arguments, but, but both litigants, you know, both Mr. Kessler uh, and the NCAA presented uh, good oral arguments in this case, but the Justice Department uh, had a role to play. I was glad that they did, and I am just glad uh, to see that uh, their views was unanimously adopted by the Supreme Court.
0: Does the Solicitor General play a role in many antitrust cases, or is it mostly about what the the case actually is?
2: So the Solicitor General plays at the Supreme Court. They also have to approve at the Courts of Appeals when the Antitrust Division or any of the other divisions, criminal Mm -hmm. division or uh, tax division, file uh, in any of those cases. The Antitrust Division, just because of the nature of the common law law, and the highly technical nature of antitrust law uh, has rep has filed more amicus uh, briefs, uh, but I would say in almost every or nearly um, every antitrust case taken by the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court takes you know maybe on average you know one uh, you know or one every couple of years uh, antitrust cases at the Supreme Court. Uh, But I I can't recall one where the solicitor general has not been involved, uh, Mm -hmm. either by invitation of the court or uh, by its own request.
0: That's interesting. I really had no idea that that they played that kind of a role in cases at, at, at all those levels, not just the Supreme Court, but at the circuit court level as well. That's pretty fascinating. So on the other end of it, we have the one side, which are the arguments and on the other end, we have regular meetings Ramogi that you've been doing now with federal and state legislators, arguing for an outcome similar to this one. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if you got an apartment in DC, you were probably (laughs) in DC so much. Um, Tell us a little bit about that journey and how you felt uh, ultimately when you heard the news yesterday, but I'm really interested for our listeners to hear about the work that you've been laying the groundwork for this.
1: Sure. I I mean, honestly, it's, I'll try to make a long story short, um, but, you know, really it started back in 2003, starting to talk with lawmakers and it had to do with the NCAA's restraint on trade. You know, uh, like I was saying earlier, my teammate, we're on a quote unquote full scholarship that the NCAA capped below the price tag of the school. So they're telling all these athletes you're on full scholarship, knowing that there's still three to $5,000 per player per year that's unaccounted for. And so there was a bill in California, an athlete's bill of rights in 2003 that would have um, prohibited uh, caps on scholarships below the cost of attendance, the, the price tag of the school, and freed up some uh, uh, some rights on uh, representation. Athletes would be able to have agents, and so on and so forth. And, and it was the first attempt. It was our first time talking to lawmakers. And um, fortunately, at the time, we had the support of the Senate president. So it, it did pass the Senate. But quickly, uh, once it passed the Senate, Uh, the NCAA started making threats, you know, obviously about group boycotts, you know, we're going to punish California schools, you'll be gone. And so that bill died in the assembly. And and I'll just point out, I think Macon's being a little humble too. You know, the thing about this is I saw a bill crash and burn several bills. You know, one reason why the states have never acted is because the states have been petrified that if they were to pass uh, laws that freed up their players to have more compensation or benefits that are, that they feel are just, the NCAA would use its monopoly power and start to punish them, right. issue group, you know, group boycotts or cartel punishments, and so the same thing started happening a couple of years ago with SB two hundred nine, which is the uh, Fair Pay to Play Act, the name and image of the bill in California. California was the first in two thousand nineteen to pass this, and in the run up, the NCAA started making those same threats, um, which is very concerning because I, at the time, I really didn't know that the bill was going to pass. Period, because I knew what we were up against. I saw another bill die just like this under under threats from the NCAA. Um, and it just so happened around that time, uh, Macon invited me, he was in the uh, antitrust division, chief of the antitrust division, and invited me to talk about these issues. And so I definitely wanted to use the opportunity to expose all of the antitrust violations from our perspective that were going on, but also the threats to California and group boycotts because I knew that, you know, that is a, a, that could have been a real factor in preventing other states from following or even from getting over the finish line, you know, in, in, in a number of places. So. Um, shortly after that, and I, I don't know what you can talk about, making or not, I, you know, you might have restrictions, but um, I know there was conversations between the DOJ, uh, Macon, and the NCA, and that was the last time I've heard the NCA make group boycott threats, which made it a whole lot easier for all of these other states to follow suit. Um, so I guess it's a long way of saying, or not, not you know, I, I'm still condensing it, believe me, there's a lot more to it, but, <laughs> you know, from our perspective, lawmakers could have done things long ago. It takes a lot of courage um, it takes a lot of you know information getting there um, but at this point it's been it's, it's felt pretty good because once it took I mean that, that bill passed unanimously in California in 2019 yeah. which when does that ever happen bipartisan right. support went from blue California to red Florida red Nebraska it didn't matter and now we have 20 states um, and members of Congress uh, talking about freedoms that should be coming to college athletes and um, I think the reflection of the Supreme Court—a 9-0 decision. You know, you know, we can we can read all day long about how divided the Supreme Court is on, you know, on, on partisan lines and everything else. But to get a 9-0 decision to me reflects how exploitative, how blatantly exploitative this system is, uh, to the point where it doesn't matter about party lines. Um, and I think that was very encouraging. But it's been a long road, as I mentioned. That was from 2003 to 2021, yeah. um, it's, it's just a shame in between all, so many athletes that have been denied uh, just basic freedoms.
0: Um, Megan, do you want to add anything to this um, concept? And I, I saw it, I read about it regularly, how states would be uh, challenged by the NCAA and anything they tried to move forward and they would back down. Is there any um, insight you can give us on that?
2: you know, not a whole lot. You know, the, we had a workshop, we had a two-day workshop on the really cutting-edge issue, uh, which is interesting because outside of just even sports on labor and antitrust, this opinion touches on and and Justice Kavanaugh's uh, concurrence opinion goes even further, but uh, it'll have a big impact. So we had it on labor antitrust issues and that was when Ramogi came in and spoke at the, on the seventh floor of the Justice Department of the Conference Center Uh, on this issue. And Alston was just coming up um, this particular case that the Supreme Court ultimately reviewed. And we were, uh, and you know, he expressed uh, some of those views. I made some uh, public comments. I later made some comments uh, at Notre Dame Law School uh, about, you know, um, the NCAA's threat to boycott uh, California. Uh, So that's about all I'll say about that. and leave the rest of the deliberations uh, to the sanctity of the DOJ process. But one thing I should add uh, to what Ramogi just said, I mean, this was not only a 9-0 decision, it was a 9-0 decision, plus uh, you had Kavanaugh in a concurring opinion almost inviting further lawsuits on other rules. And then at the end of the decision, I mean, Justice Gorsuch uh, throughout, I mean, he mentioned that, hey, the players did not challenge uh, the other aspects of um, of the district court or the Ninth Circuit opinion, only the NCAA does, so we're only limiting uh, our review to this and did not go much further. But basically, threw a little bit of shade also on other types of restraints. Just you know, did not need to go further. Wrote it where it is, and my guess is that this opinion and some of the commentary in this might invite challenges to other restraints. Uh, Uh, that the that were not subject to the challenge or before review. Uh, And then certainly Justice Kavanaugh's, you know, uh, blows it wide, wide open.
0: And and we're going to get to that in a second. But I do have a quick question for you. Did this case come to the court at the right time with the right mix of justices? And did it help that Justice Kavanaugh was a passionate sports fan and a youth sports coach?
2: (laughs) You know, I, 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 it's certainly Uh, didn't hurt I think that um, certainly some of the enthusiasm uh, and energy of some of the younger justices uh, particularly the most recent three that are you know in their uh, either late 40s or early 50s um, and have had some experience and grew up uh, at the time when college sports is the debate has been much more public Um, it it didn't hurt I, I don't know if you know, had had you had the prior justices uh, that these justices replaced, Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy and Justice Ginsburg, um, if the decision would have been any different? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's certainly you had a confluence. You So you had these state laws and you had the NCAA's action. You had the O'Bannon case that, you know, Alston kind of followed up on in that same Ninth Circuit Um Uh, precedent that kind of opened the door a bit to these issues. And then you had, uh, you know, you had um, the NCAA, I think, overplaying their hand, almost asking for some preferential rules and exemptions from the antitrust laws uh, in a time where antitrust, I'd say over the last four years, has become such a focus of the general public debate, whether it's for the big tech companies or the debate around antitrust and its implications in all aspects of our lives. So I think all of these factored in uh, to to where we are today.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the impact on tech and and a little bit later. But Romogi, I want to come back to you about uh, one of the statements that uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote. He stated There are serious questions whether the NCAA's remaining compensation rules can pass muster under Alston. The NCAA couches its arguments for not paying student athletes in innocuous labels, but the labels cannot disguise the reality. The NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. Share with my listeners your thoughts on his observations.
1: I mean, 100% agree. He's 100% right. And it's been so frustrating <clears throat> over the years to we can prove with data, with facts, even legal precedent, why the system is so wrong, unfair, unjust, illegal. But yet it seemed like lawmakers too often would look, look the other way. Courts, you know, you mentioned the Obanian case making, and um, it was one of those things where we felt like we won, but we lost at the same time because essentially the court said, yes, this is absolutely illegal. Um, they have no business, you know, they have no power to cap compensation and to limit athletes in this way. Congress has never given them an antitrust exemption. They're absolutely guilty only to say that, but the remedy is going to be, we're going to lift that scholarship up to the cost of attendance and that's it, which again, we've been fighting for for a long time, but that wasn't an appropriate remedy. And so since the Ninth Circuit, in our opinion, failed to bring justice, that's why we backed the California bill. California lawmakers did what the Ninth, ninth Circuit should have done. And they opened up NIL rights completely, pretty much, and all the other states followed suit. And here we are. But it's time and time again where college athletes have been. We expect the schools and the NCAA to, to um, you know, bend over backwards to protect their empire and monopolize players' money. And they'll call it amateurism. They'll say student athletes instead of college athletes. And they use these words. And then in turn, the courts have too often played to those words and deferred to the NCAA. So. This this Supreme Court decision is huge, you know, and it absolutely does pave a way for future challenges, but also and that's just legally, but politically. So when you asked about talking to lawmakers. Now that empowers us to talk to lawmakers and say, see, it's unjust, it's illegal. So let's craft a way. It's up to us to craft a way to to create a system that's more fair. Otherwise, yeah, you are going to end up in the courts and the courts are just going to say yes or no, and then you're going to be left. a system that just you know has no structure to it why not let's be thoughtful about it and treat athletes fairly and that's our pitch you know we mentioned before we have a california bill right now that would actually open up compensation for college athletes based on their fair market value and that's our pitch is look this is unjust illegal california can is free to do what it wants and now with this opinion even the court the supreme court saying that the ncaa doesn't have a monopoly here And, and i think it frees people up to think okay if it is up to us do we agree with the situation that's going on in California or in our respective states? Um, and I think we, we can blaze another trail, just follow you know, follow the path that um, the name, image, likeness bills have followed. If we know if one state opens up compensation that the others will follow. And at that point, college athletes will have more, more justice.
0: It's such an interesting conundrum. And you, you think about higher education as, as the on one hand, the NCAA doesn't have any competition because they really control the marketplace. But on the other hand, you look at the NAIA and what has happened to them this year, they've allowed NIL legislation to happen and the world hasn't fallen off its axis. So it's remarkable how much of a big deal the sky is falling, the sky is falling that NCAA leadership screamed about this. I almost feel like even today, they still feel like the sky is falling. They have no answers for this, Ramogi. What are your thoughts about this?
1: Well, I think, you know, one thing I said immediately after the passage of the SB 209 in California was either the NCAA is going to grant athletes all the rights that California just uh, adopted, or it's going to become irrelevant. And it's become irrelevant on name, image, and likeness. The states have taken control, which is great for college athletes. Um, And yes, that'd be great for Congress to to get involved if it's going to actually grant those same freedoms nationwide and address some other issues like health and safety. Um, but if Congress is just going to do the NCAA a favor and roll back freedoms, then Congress need not get involved. That's our message. Let the states have at <laughs> it. Um, and it's interesting. Some of the NCAA, you know, now they're scrambling after yesterday. You're seeing some of the, you know, their reaction. And some of the conference commissioners are saying, "Hey, instead of passing this new NCAA proposed package that would still have draconian restrictions on NIL, we're going to get sued. The, the Supreme Court is signaling we're all going to get sued into oblivion. So why not have no restrictions?" Why, you know, virtually no restrictions, let, let, leave it up to the colleges. We'll give them some guidance. And for the most part, some of the guidance would be all right but some of it like they still wanna restrict boosters. Well, not all the states are doing that. That's not a least restrictive alternative that many of the states have already adopted. So they'll still be sued. But alternatively it's funny because they, they think that, well, maybe we should do nothing and just postpone. But doing nothing is worse than, than freeing things up because their existing rules are the worst. Yeah. A, a player, especially come July 1st can turn around and the, especially if you're in a state that doesn't have a law at all, you can turn around through the NCAA and have a whole lot of credibility Right, come July 1st. So they need to do something and they need to just step back. And if they want to play ball and have uniformity, then they need to understand that's going to come with broad-based reforms like health and safety and medical expenses and scholarship protections.
0: Yeah, and, and so far we we haven't even begun to, to get into those areas, but I did want to point out uh, Steve Berkowitz in USA Today wrote that so far the NCAA has spent $280 million on legal fees just trying to, to um, protect the status quo, and and my, my understanding is that they're going to continue to spend legal fees because we have other cases in the pipeline now that'll be reconsidered because of the Supreme Court decision. Megan, I, I realize that I'm asking you on the fly here to talk about this, but what could this mean for some of the other cases that are coming down the, the pike? Well,
2: I think it, you know it opens the door now much further for legal challenges. Uh, you know the, the opinion itself, is relatively narrow, you know, to the district court's opinion and whether or not it was appropriate um, and pushing back against some of the uh, NCAA's attacks and its uh, attempts to rewrite antitrust law into some kind of an exemption for itself. But um, I think, you know, just as the court somewhat invited and Justice Kavanaugh uh, wrote, um, and, and, you know, look, I think Yesterday, I think I read some quote from the president, you know, Dr. Emmert, president of the NCAA, said, you know, well, or maybe it was one of their lawyers, I forget which one, uh, that, oh, you know, Kavanaugh's opinion doesn't mean anything. It's just a concurrence. I mean, my goodness, talk about being tone deaf if that's the way they're approaching it. And it reminds me of, God, what was that? Was that in December or January when they had a meeting? to adopt the transfer rules and name, image, and likeness rules. They were going a certain direction. And you know, this is a matter of public record now. Uh, I had written a letter to Dr. Emmert um, and saying that you know, the antitrust division uh, you know, is concerned about some of the changes. Make sure you guys change it consistent with the antitrust laws. Uh, that was largely it. Um, and the transfer rules were frankly long overdue uh, about some of the changes, some of the restrictions they put on schools for student athletes to transfer after a year or two. You know, they have to go seek permission of the, of, of before they even go engage in a, in a school they want to transfer to, their coach and their team. And it's just um, uh, offensive restrictions that shouldn't exist. But they, they delayed it, saying, oh, they delayed it because of the Justice Department's concerns. And that just wasn't true. The, uh, the letter was, you know, it, 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 they were planning on delaying it because the Supreme Court granted cert on the Alston case. So they thought they're going to get a shot, you know, a free shot into the goal, so to speak, and get some kind of an antitrust immunity. And therefore, they don't have to make any changes to NIL or this, I think they miscalculated. That's just not, I don't think that shows leadership and uh, to do the right thing. And here they needed to do the right thing. I hope that they go ahead and do it rather than spend money and continue to fight these legal battles on multiple fronts. Frankly, I think there is a solution here that you know they should get to the table with Ramogi and other representatives and come up with a workable solution that might provide some narrow antitrust immunities for the NCAA to do some of the activities that it wants to do. And the opinion kind of recognized of some of the limits, but in exchange, allow for collective uh, representation of these student athletes who have no representation. I mean, at least, you know, at the Major League Baseball and NFL, you know, if you're, if you're Michael Jordan, you can have Falk represent you or Lee Steinberg or somebody you know, if you're a, an NFL player, these student athletes have no, they have really no leverage. The only leverage they have is their athleticism and the demand for their talents leaving high school, and that's it. But if you can provide health, safety, future education, a number of these, they could come together, have a solution that Congress blesses, and, and a lot of this incremental litigation that's going to drive them, they could put that money to better use.
0: So let me ask you to explain to our listeners another piece of this that I think uh, because most of my audience are senior campus leaders, presidents, trustees, vice presidents, and so I want to help them understand something. Kavanaugh wrote about price-fixing labor is price-fixing labor, and price-fixing labor is ordinarily a textbook antitrust problem because it extinguishes the free market in which individual, individuals can otherwise obtain fair compensation for their work. Help our listeners understand this concept as college administrators often think of college campus experiences as developmental and therefore not worthy of comparison to a free market.
2: So one of the important distinctions and that has real legal consequences is, is this collective action where you're setting prices uh, you know, for the for the, for the value of anything here, it just happens to be labor, and that's the NCAA setting this collective rule. Uh, nothing limits individual schools from putting those types of limits, should they choose to do so. But now they're going to have to compete. So if you know, if UCLA puts some restriction on, you know, on on you know limits on scholarship or future education or something, uh, but. You know Duke does not, well, then that competition would actually be working. So in, the antitrust laws would not limit a particular school, at least not in these contexts, from some of these restraints that were challenged here. But as a collective effort, uh, it does. And it limits that type of competition that schools or, frankly, states could have with each other. Um, and that's the court. You know, Justice Gorsuch got into it. The basic principles of the Sherman Act is that competition, in and of itself, is good, regardless of other, you know, good uh, justifications. And he mentioned several past Supreme Court uh, uh, opinions that got into, regardless of what your ultimate, you know, societal goal is, you can't limit competition to achieve that, and you shouldn't. Um, and and I think Justice Kavanaugh was getting uh, to that: is that you should not collude uh, in order to limit, uh, you know, pay in this case to the student athlete in some form. And um, so I think, you know, if I was an individual administrator of a court, um, I would look at this and say, okay, I may have the individual power, but now in a competitive setting, how would that relate? Uh, but to adhere to that because it's imposed on me by a collective group, um, that's what was uh, outlawed by this decision.
0: Got it. So Ramogi, back in 1972, the NCAA dictated that athletic programs should be quote unquote self-sustaining. Clearly that has not been the case for decades as subsidization of even high profile programs has occurred quite regularly. Can the NCAA, in your opinion, as it currently is constructed survive? And if not, how should the business model
1: look? Well, for one thing, <clears throat> I'll point out that really any school-based athletic program is typically subsidized, right? So you have high school, community college, the NAIA, you know, even Division uh, three and two. So Division one, there's subsidies as well. I think um, the thing that that kind of gets the question kind of gets to wait a minute. What about Ohio State's making two hundred twenty-five million dollars? Should they be charging their students fees to support athletic programs, right? And the answer is no, I, I don't think they should at all. I mean, at, at some point, the whole discussion, a lot of this discussion and scrutiny is, is because college sports is a big commercial industry and it's pretending it's not. It's pretending it's Little League Baseball or, you know, Rec, rec, rec League Basketball. And it's not the case. And so there's equity issues, right? But I, I personally think that once you hit a certain threshold, you shouldn't be, you know, charging students fees and, and uh, you should be spending responsibly. And I think that's where the issue is, is that, it's kind of not a revenue problem, it's a spending problem. You look at division one um, and you know it's just ridiculous. You have coaches making millions and millions of dollars, even athletic directors now making millions of dollars. Administrative bloat has gone crazy. I mean, over the last, for 15 years between 2003 and 18, um, $5 billion in new revenue, about a billion dollars in new administrative expenses. And there's actually fewer athletes in division one people say, what about the non-revenue sports and more money and all that money's not going to those sports were paid for long ago. Right. So that new money is going into people's pockets. You don't need more administrators for less athletes. You have 1500 new assistant coaches now over that time period Mm -hmm. and 300 less athletes over that time period. So the issue is, um, you know, why why are they spinning that way and if they're spinning that way why should athletes also be kind of cut out of this and they're gonna spin that way anyway some of that might as well be flowing to the athletes who are out there putting in the work so um, i mean is it sustainable it is to the the degree to which colleges are fine operating this way but what was interesting is in the hearing last uh, year in the senate i was in a i think it was the chancellor of wisconsin and there and she was talking about um, college coaches you know and how the runaway expenses are on their salaries and that they're helpless to stop it because they feel like they have to compete, right? And um, she said she'd be in favor of capping coaches' salaries. And you know, if you're talking about caps and things like that, right now players are subject to a cap, right? You have until this Austin lawsuit zero dollars basically over the cost of attendance, um, even third-party. You know, that's going to start to change in July 1st on third-party name, image, or likeness. And even in scenarios where you say players should be paid, you're still talking about some kind of cap, typically. But you're not talking about a cap on spending. And you know, from my perspective, even if players get paid, they're gonna be capped. And if players are gonna be capped in some way, then so should associate uh, coaches and social spending on facilities and administration, anything, if this is about a competitive advantage or trying to reduce competitive advantages, then you gotta have revenue sharing and you gotta have caps. You gotta make sure every team in a division it has about the same budget. College sports isn't gonna do that because the power schools don't want that, they're winning. So I think there's just a lot of hypocrisy in the system. I do think it's, 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 it is sustainable, it's gonna go on, but it's just gonna be more and more excessive expenditures um, that are pretty blatant. And, and hopefully it changes to where it's not coming from the student fees at the very least.
0: Yeah, at the very least. Uh, Macon, I wanna talk about a subject that I know uh, you're very passionate about and I enjoy immensely, but th- this idea of the digital entertainment space and distribution models such as Amazon, Apple, Facebook, how might they meet be impacted by this decision or how might they impact the debate over student athletes in this scenario?
2: You know, that's a a great question. And that's the realities of the marketplace here. Um, Justice Gorsuch in his opinion talks about how antitrust, you need to review antitrust based on the current realities of the marketplace. And what may have been accurate in 1984, this was in response to uh, the NCAA saying that the NCAA versus Board of Regents decision from 1984 should somehow restrain this court. And he's like, no, look, antitrust law has never been that way. We look at the realities, and that's just the way antitrust, reality is the marketplace. That's just the way antitrust uh, enforcement and application uh, have continued, and we're going to continue that. And then, you know, said, look, the NCAA itself has changed. It's allowed for some compensation. I think part of that is the fact that you have new digital uh, players in the marketplace competing for the content. So it's not just the broadcasters, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and ESPN. Uh, We just saw that with the latest round of the NFL and uh, uh, NHL. Uh, uh, sports rights. And I think you're now going to have, you know, perhaps Amazon bidding for the next Notre Dame or the SEC contract, you know, when that comes up for renegotiation. So you're having more competition, which is good. And by that, it means more revenues will be going to these universities and hopefully, you know, flowing to some of the students and providing greater. So on one front, it's providing greater, just the new market entrance is gonna create more competition for the schools and the leagues. Uh, In addition to that, I think with the changes for name, image and likeness, which wasn't subject of the Alston case, but it will affect that. And it's all these new legislation uh, that are going into effect uh, July of this year and and upcoming, and as Ramogi said, about you know 20 states now have them well you know do these you know does yahoo or facebook or twitter or amazon start now paying for the name image and likeness of some of the athletes can mm-hmm. they now become players in that so on the other side they can become you know who knows tiktok maybe you know the next ramogi huma UCLA football can be the tiktok influencer Uh, and be allowed to under the California law. And I think you're going to see a lot more action uh, uh, in that regard. And then does the NCAA come in and put any kind of limits on that? Is that education related? Is it not? Is it violate the state laws? So I think uh, the fact that we have this new entrance into this space, and we just saw the very first Uh, you know, contract, I believe it was Amazon that got the Thursday night rights of NFL football. Uh, There's no reason why Amazon or, you know, Facebook or whomever, Twitter or TikTok uh, is not going to be bidding on one of the collegiate rights um, in the future and drive up those types of revenue. So I think it's exciting. It's exciting for college sports and its future. Um, but that only adds to the, uh, to the little bit of the dyna- dynamic uh, effects of, uh, of, of this decision.
0: Yeah, Ramogi, what are your thoughts about, uh, you know, especially the emergence of TikTok and Snapchat and, and those kinds of things? And I saw where TikTok was paying um, influencers that they thought had potential a million dollars to kind of just go off and be really creative. What do you think about that in the space?
1: I think that's going to be a primary way for some of these athletes to make some money, um, and especially uh, female athletes. You know, one of the things that um, was mentioned, or there was analysis done during the March Madness tournament, of uh, the uh, the teams in the Elite Eight, men's and women's, of the top ten athletes that have the biggest social media follow followers, eight of them were women, and this is a pretty standard way nowadays where you can get paid for posting things if you have a lot of followers. Um, if you remember Sedona Prince, she's the Oregon basketball player um, who shot the video of the disparity between the men and women's weight rooms this year and really just made a lot of waves and a lot of progress in that discussion. She has 2.4 million TikTok followers. I mean, literally, it, it's, it's, it's awesome, the potential that she has. Um, we're working really hard to get NIL bill passed in her state, It just passed the Senate. So hopefully, hopefully they'll get, um, she'll have an opportunity to utilize that. So um, the sky's the limit, really, and I think, and, and, and to your point, Megan, you know, the 1984 decision that actually the, the colleges challenged the NCAA's monopoly on TV deals. The NCAA used to monopolize all TV, and the colleges wanted to strike their own deals. They took it to the Supreme Court, and the, the colleges won. They no longer had to be subject to the NCAA's monopoly, and, view, and and the viewership exploded. Now, before you can get maybe one game a week or whatever it was prior to 1984, after that, nowadays, you turn on the TV, you know, you can see all kinds of games throughout, you know, whenever they're being played, depending on the region. And that has been a primary catalyst for the influx of billions and billions and billions of dollars. It's enhanced the sport and it's, and it's enhanced the product Um, and the industry has done well. And now we're fighting to make sure the players can be involved in that.
0: I think that's a great analysis. I really do. Because if you think about it, we really have seen way more sports since 1984. And maybe that's one of the drivers from the technology of the expansion of cable and that type of thing. So you both bring up some good points. Now let's talk a little bit about some of the details going forward. So a lot of these benefits that the Supreme Court is saying have to be related to education. Those include things like computers, science equipment, musical instruments, scholarships to complete undergraduate or graduate degrees at any school, paid internships for athletes who have already completed their sports eligibility. It also permits schools to provide cash or cash equivalent awards based on their academics or their graduation status. So if I'm a coach, and this is for either one of you, if I'm a coach right now recruiting an athlete, either from the transfer portal or the from a high school, what can I say to a prospect right now?
2: Oh, wait, that is a, well, without wading into providing any kind of legal advice, right? Right. Because, you know, a lot of these are still limited. And the court said that the NCAA, you know, the the decree allows the NCAA to kind of define what is education related, what it's not, it certainly listed a number of these. And I think it's, you know, you got to be a little bit careful if you're a coach about what you say. Um, But, I think uh, there is a number of these, the most exciting part of this, you know, of of the types of benefits uh, that you listed to me is the fact that you can provide for, you know, post collegiate uh, education and vocational. I just think it was offensive that, you know, a school cannot compete at the time when the athlete has the greatest leverage by saying, you know, you come to play at UCLA, you know, we have a, First rate, you know, business school, med school, law school, uh, psychology school, whatever, uh, film school. And if you play with us after you're done, if you don't make it to the NBA or NFL, you could go to medical school for us and we'll pay for the darn thing. And, you know, I think Mark Emmert had, you know, analogized the medical degree to a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or something, but so be it. Let them compete, there's not, you know, you're only gonna be advancing the education of perhaps some of the most economically challenged uh, groups that need it, but why not compete on that with other schools and up the ante? Those make sense. Internships, we all know how important internships are uh, for advancement within society and the professional world. Um, Those are critical. Uh, but just to say you have to do them for free, you have to then go work at, you know, wherever it might be in a law firm, in a medical lab, or, you know, sports agency business, uh, and do it without getting paid um, is offensive. And that's what I think this court put an end to those restrictions. But that's going to be a great way to, I think, expanding the opportunities for students uh, in the future. As far as what is specific, um, we'll have to wait and see uh, exactly what the limits are. Needless to say, that door has been uh, kicked wide open right now.
0: Mogi, uh, if you were a coach right now, what would you what would you be saying?
1: I mean, really just to piggyback, but I think at the end of the day, what, what Megan said is correct in, in terms of not jumping the gun because the NCAA, you know, they have give, been given some leeway as to define what's what and what's allowable. But in that context, the coaches should be preparing packages. And, you know, based on what they can allow to make the best deals for their recruits based on the budget that's allotted to them, period. And like, like Megan said, that could be med school, that could be grad school, um, that could be $5,600 or about $6,000 now in cash um, in education related achievement incentives, right? Some of those things that are lined up, you should know that as a recruit. So that's gonna be the next ch- the next piece of information that's gonna be very important is for recruits as to what, if I'm signing, what does that mean? What package are you offering me here? I think that should be very transparent. So I think that's going to be another phase of this. Um, that's really important. And then again, when you're competing, you know the NCA likes to use you know things that make some people feel uncomfortable, like Lamborghini. The ideas of Lamborghinis, which this actually doesn't open up. Um, but like Megan said, the idea of a, a the educational equivalent might be med school, and that's that's okay. That should be celebrated. No one should get in the way of that, especially not illegally in a cartel.
0: So right now, college administ- uh, administrators listening to this, we're thinking, holy cow, I've got to come up with the $100,000 it costs somebody to go to medical school and be able to put it into a contract and have that money come from some budget somewhere. Is that, is my, am I understanding you correctly?
1: Well, every budget is finite. I don't care who you are, even Ohio State. I use Ohio State as an example. Their budget is finite. So, um, so instead of what's going on now is that finite budget, a lot of it's getting shoveled into coaches' salaries and, you know, more luxury boxes in the stadiums. Now, they're gonna have to be much more thoughtful. These ADs who get paid a whole lot of money, they're gonna have to start being more worth the value (laughs) to their school. They're gonna have to actually do a little bit of work and and budget and fundraise and figure out what they can do within their school. And so, you know, people say, oh, now this is gonna cost extra. No, it's gonna cost a shift in money. You can't just produce money out of nowhere. So, you will be uh, making decisions like, you know, what do I prioritize more? Do I give this coach an extra $100,000 a year? or do I took that away for med school, for that coach to use as a lure for recruit for med school who's expressed interest in becoming a doctor, you know, interest in becoming a doctor as a recruit?
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely see that. I, I can imagine I have administrators listening that's going, holy cow, does this all this have to happen now, Megan, or or do I have some time? Does it go back to Judge Wilkins and therefore we, we, we can sort of negotiate this at the Ninth Circuit level? How does this work? <laughs>
2: So, you know, from the, from the court's direction, it seems like Judge Wilkins will play a significant role. Um, her decree is amendable, and she, she invited and welcomed, look, the NCAA, come and you can modify it if you come up with a definition, and we can modify this decree. Uh, but you can't, you know, place these restraints, come to us about what it is. Now I I do, you know, at at some level, just from a judicial administration and judicial efficiency, I worry that are we going to have basically a, a you know nationwide sports regulator, in a federal court in a judge where, you know, we have some examples of that. The AT and T was broken up in Judge Green and the District of Columbia until 1996, when Congress passed the Telecom Reform Act. Judge Green was effectively the nationwide regulator of almost every telephone rate over, you know, telephones being plugged by third parties into the phone system, Uh, long distance, local rates. It was just um, an interesting one, but it was the modified consent decree that went on. Uh, The music industry, which I tried and, you know, at the end, ultimately, uh, we did not change. Uh, but the music industry for almost 80 years has been subject for public performance rights, its rates and who they license to under a consent decree with the antitrust division, the justice department in Manhattan. So you got two judges, one for ASCAP, one for BMI determining, uh, who gets licensed and what the rates were. And until a year and a half ago, or until about, well, actually about a year ago, exactly. The movie industry, uh, What movies, how they were licensed, uh, could they be bundled together? Could they be licensed circuit-wide? At the theatrical level was regulated since 1952 Mm -hmm. by a consent decree with the Justice Department. Again, another antitrust consent decree, also in Manhattan, uh, until I moved to terminate that, which got terminated last year. Uh, So you have, and then they become fixed. But look, this is better than the restraints, so that's good. But you don't want to have, uh, kind of, you know. I think just free competition would be much better than to have this done. Uh, but it also could argue for uh, a more, um, uh, a more efficient system where uh, the players and the elite, the conferences and the NCAA come to a table and maybe seek uh, some kind of a fair. Uh, federal legislation to address some of these rather than by piecemeal in multiple places where you, you end up wasting a lot of resources on lawyers rather than spending it on the players.
0: Right, right. So let me wrap it up with, with that very comment right there. Murmogi, let's talk about it. Is it time for each of the conferences to form a kind of a collective agreement with athletes? Sit down and say, okay, what works best for the Pac-12? What works back best for the uh, big 10 it, it should should that kind of conversation happen at the conference level versus ncaa
1: well i, I think you know actually i try to organize northwestern football players back in 2014 um and it kind of we made some progress but then it, it also the realities of trying to get collective bargaining for players uh became pretty stark you know when each state we initially won there the, the the district uh ruling um for the NRB and immediately Ohio and Michigan passed laws prohibiting college athletes as employees or or unionizing those states. So, you know, states can control their public uh, athletes, the athletes at their public schools. The NRB, um, who actually uh, was a lot more conservative than what this conservative Supreme Court was, people were kind of shocked, how's it 9-0 over here? The Supreme Court gave athletes a fair shake and they they won. The NRB didn't, they refused to rule and and it kind of ended so you you know you kind of don't know, in what framework this could actually work out. College athletes are cr- spread across the whole nation. There's states that govern public school athletes, which are the majority, for instance, in Division One. You got the NLRB governing private athletes. The conferences span both public and private. Yeah. Um, so it's it's difficult. I don't know how exactly that that would work. Short of if Congress said yes, college athletes should be able to have a union, which I think politically is 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 a uphill battle to say the least. But um, I think you know, realistically, I don't, I think, like you mentioned, uh, Megan, that being tone deaf about the time right now, college sports leaders are completely tone deaf. I don't know where they're getting their information. The reality is in Congress, we're talking every single day to these offices. Um, we're in a good spot, college athletes are in a good spot, but I think the sports leaders are going to continue banging their heads up against the wall in Congress, unless there's more discussions and they start listening to people on our side and you know, uh, trying to really work out some kind of something that's that that's more pop, uh, practical. Um, but but, but Megan, I, I share kind of the same worry about, you know, I, I, I there might be an underestimation about <laughs> the nooks and crannies, every little detail that the NCA has regulated. I think Judge Wilkins may have her hands full. I mean, she may be doing this full time because these are the kinds of things, be, you know, cream cheese on a bagel. You know, that's that's against NSA rules. But just the, the bagel by itself is OK. That's how. <laughs> small the ncaa is on all these things and now you know poor judge wilkins is going to be subject to trying to figure each and every dispute out that can get that granular but we
2: could have we could have a worse judge than judge wilkins so on a positive note she has been very thoughtful uh in in finding the faults here so that that's and on a positive note you know it's her
0: well it's a remarkable remarkable time and you both have given both me and my listeners, a tremendous amount to think about. We've covered the waterfront in so many different directions. I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful for your passion for this topic. And I, I, I'm grateful to be alive at a time where I think we, we have the chance to have some real substantive change in the way this, this enterprise works. So, uh, Megan Remogi, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for
1: thank having me. Thank you
2: us. so much. Thanks for having us and thanks for all Ramogi has done and Taryn for what you continue to do in helping uh, educate the next uh, set of lead and the continuing set of leaders at the collegiate level to uh, to end up being aware at least of what the limits on what they should do uh, is. But uh, thank you again, Ramogi. Uh, go Bruins, go Penn, <laughs> and uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that Ed O'Bannon uh, it was an old UCLA Bruin and a, and a phenomenal yes. basketball player.
0: <laughs> the the road, road runs through Westwood. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank Bye-bye. You.